Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Bobby Hugel coming up in a little bit, but first, I am joined by my co-host this week, Mary Clarkson, the owner of La Olivier Restaurant in Montrose. Mary, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Good to see you. So you were in Mexico this last weekend. Bobby (laughs) was in Mexico this last weekend. I went to Dallas. That doesn't seem fair. Uh, You were extended an invitation. That that. (laughs) That is true. <laughs> but I have I have adorable nephews in Dallas, and they have to be visited from time to time. I have adorable tequila in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and it must be consumed. Yes. All right. Well, let's dive into the news of the week. You and I attended a dinner together. We did. At Reef. This is the first time that Reef had been open to the public since Hurricane Harvey dumped a whole bunch of water through its roof and closed it. We were there to sample wines by Matthiasen Winery in California and also to taste a little bit of the cuisine that Brian Caswell has been referring to as Reef 2.0. Mary, I'm just going to I'm going to start by saying that I thought we had a really nice dinner and we only got kind of a preview of the new look at Reef because it's not done yet. They still have a whole bunch of banquettes to install, but but it's got a new coat of paint. It has a new chef's counter, and I am excited about the imminent return of Reef to the dining scene. What do you think? I thought it was a wonderful uh, first kind of preview. I thought the meal was reflective of where he's where chef's at right now. Uh, it was seafood forward, but there were also some other surprises there towards uh, the entree portions of the meal. Uh, his pork belly was delicious. That was a surprise. Uh, for yeah, me. Chinese. I, I've been referring to it as sort of Chinese style chasu, glazed and crispy pork belly. At least that's how I've been thinking about it. <laughs> it was um, that was that was the biggest surprise for me. The first course was um, it wasn't a ceviche; it was a crudo. Yep, thinly sliced red snapper with uh, with herbs and spices. That that to me was something I could eat every day. Super approachable. The wines were paired. Very well. Um, ironically, one of my favorite wines was the orange wine um, that was served. Yeah, I, I think what Matthiasen is doing, um, slightly higher acidity, lower ABV, very food friendly, uh, made for a very good set of pairings with Caswell's, Chef Caswell's food. And of course, that's uh, a credit to our good friend, Nate Rose, who is the new wine director at Reef and will be overseeing their beverage program when they reopen, which should be in another couple of weeks. I think they're down to two weeks is the last thing I heard. So I'm super excited, even if it's a soft opening. Yeah. It, it you know, but you know, they ran, <laughs> they ran dinner for about 40 people with, I think uh, four cooks in the kitchen. So that's pretty admirable. Everything came out. It came out pretty good. I think a dinner like that for them, I think it was originally scheduled they were already going to be open, but I think a dinner like that for them is really a nice uh, thing to motivate them towards the finish line, and I thought they did a really elegant job of pulling it off. Well, the other thing is I talked to Brian and Jennifer after the dinner for an article that I published last week, and 
I think Brian is really sincere in the fact that he just missed cooking at Reef. Missed that food, missed the space, missed his customers. <coughs> you know, he uh, he opened Oxbow 7 in the La Meridian Hotel. That obviously didn't work out. We didn't really talk about that at all, either on or off the record. But, you know, I from my perspective, I feel like he has a little bit uh, to prove now that Reef can regain its status as one of Houston's top restaurants. Reef is his baby. A chef like this wants to be in the kitchen cooking for people. I mean, these these types of chefs want their passion, their heart, their soul, all of that lies in the kitchen. So that's where they want to be. And I'm sure it's been a, a hard thing for him to be out of the kitchen at Reef for so long because that's that's his that's his legacy, I, I would say at this point, is Reef and what it's contributed to this city. So I know that's where he wants to be is in the kitchen. All right, let us move on. The Heights Waterworks project keeps getting more and more interesting. It is already going to be home to Houston's second location of Common Bond, uh, a third location of Hopdotty inside the loop, and Ripe Cuisine, the vegan food truck that is uh, very popular. Now, they have announced that they have signed Jinya Ramen, which most uh, I think most Culture Map readers are familiar with their location in Midtown, but they also have locations in Webster and out in Katy. Of all of the ramen shops around town, I think Jinya is the most popular. Every time I go to that Midtown location, whether for lunch, dinner, or late night, uh, there is always a crowd and there is frequently a wait. So I think the idea that they're going to have another location inside the loop is good news for a lot of people. And they're really, there's, there's a lot of ramen right around Washington Avenue, but not in the Heights proper. And so I think this is going to be a really nice addition to the waterworks. I think you made a very good point. I think Heights doesn't have as many options for ramen as say Montrose or Washington Avenue does. So it's a good addition for that reason. And it's, you know, building on what's going on at the waterworks, this is another affordable concept. There's not there's not like ambitious plans for for fine dining, although there is one there is one space left. So fast casual is where it's at. Yeah, and, well, and even though Virginia is primarily full service, it's affordable. You know, mm-hmm. a bowl of soup is between twelve and fifteen dollars. You get a beer. You know, maybe you're twenty five bucks a person tax and tip, which is not unreasonable i agree are you a Virginia fan i am i'm not as big into the ramen as you are i know you love ramen i definitely get a craving for it a handful of times a year fair enough and then as we note that one japanese influence concept is opening we should also note that one is closing <laughs> one that i never went to <laughs> <laughs> and evidently no one else well so kakuri the upscale sushi restaurant that opened up next to taco deli on washington avenue has closed after about six months in business. Uh, we found this out because the landlord posted a lockout notice on the door, which is never a good sign. This could, is a restaurant that had a lot of promise when it opened. You could hardly see it, though, from the street. I have to say that. Well, let's talk about... So let me let me set it up, and then I'll, I'll let you talk about some of the problems that may have doomed it. But <laughs> it, it opened with some promise because the chef came from New York where he worked for Jewel Baca, which has a Michelin star. And there is certainly a market for upscale sushi, especially omakase at Katarobata, at MF Sushi, to a, slim, a more limited extent at Koo. Uh, 
So there is this idea that there is an audience for this stuff. And, and I've seen some criticism uh, in the comments sections on Facebook and elsewhere and, and, and on Culture Map, frankly, that you know nothing lasts on Washington Avenue and upscale restaurants don't work. Well, B&B Butchers <laughs> is right next door and kills it. And Soma Sushi has been there forever and does very well by all accounts. So uh, this notion that, Washington, that, that the location was bad doesn't really resonate with me. But I do think there were some other problems, and I think you started to identify that. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, just visibility, I think it was open several months before I even noticed it, and I drive down Washington Avenue pretty frequently. So, I don't know, I maybe signage, maybe lack of visibility, heard it. I, I really didn't hear a lot of people in our industry, in our community, talk about it too much after it opened. It wasn't MF Sushi, Uchi, uh, kata, I mean, those are the places I feel like people were going. Well, and I, I think so. I think that is definitely part of it. You know, I saw, talking about the visibility problem, I saw uh, a Facebook comment from someone who does some marketing for Julep off and on who said he didn't even know it existed. <laughs> uh, Julep is basically right across the street. So if, if he didn't know that Kirkuri was there and what they were doing, then first of all, he should be reading Culture Map because I, I did cover it. <laughs> But also, they needed to market it better, and they, you know, I, I tagged them on a tweet, and someone replied back to me. They had one follower. That's that's not enough. Whoa! And their, you know, the rest of their social media, their Facebook, their Instagram, just never really developed. There wasn't a lot of media outreach. I mean, I I heard from them in a limited in a limited way. Uh, I know they got some coverage in Houstonia, but you know, this is this is the sort of thing that should have been greeted with a similar fervor to what greeted Yawacha, right? A, a restaurant or a chef with a Michelin star pedigree comes to Houston. That should be big news. And it never got the push that it deserved. And, you know, part of that I think is on the restaurant. You have to let people know that you're out there. You have to, to shout it from the rooftops and get, get people in the door. And I will say I, I went there for an omakase at their invitation and you know, for a meal that they were charging $170 for, it just didn't feel as creative or as exciting as the similar meals that I've had at MF and Kata, specifically because the, the fish, the middle fish courses, you know, the, not the, the Toro and the uni tasting at the end were spectacular, but the, the middle fish courses all kind of ran together in terms of their flavor. And so by the time you got to the end, you were full and maybe couldn't appreciate the, the magnificence of what you were eating and the other thing is you know you can tout the fish that you're buying from japan but if you look at the specials menu at kato or you look at what's going on at mf or ku they're buying the same stuff right nobody nobody gets something that's just for them i would agree with that but kata is still my favorite for fish in town no i love i love kata <laughs> Uchi uh, second, and I know that may not be Eric's, but Uchi would be my second. Right, I love I love Kata. <laughs> I am there frequently for lunch, uh, less frequently for dinner because I tend to spend a lot of money when I go there, and I can only do that so often. Well, that wraps it up for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. So, Mary, for our restaurants of the week, we. We dined together at Reef. We have not dined elsewhere, but there are a couple of places I do want to talk about just briefly. The first is Fig and Olive, the New York-based Mediterranean concept that has just opened up in the former Saks Fifth Avenue location in the Galleria. 
This is the first of four upscale restaurants coming to the Galleria over the next several months. Mary, have you been to a Fig and Olive in another city? I have not, and nor did you invite me to your experience. Um, I did read your article and saw the photos. It looks beautiful. It is It is a very pretty restaurant. I will say that it's, it's listed at 7,000 square feet, but it doesn't feel that big because of the way they've kind of divided up the room and some of that's allocated to private dining space, which is probably smart. Uh, the menu itself is designed to be sort of lighter, uh, a more accessible take on sort of French and primarily French and Italian inspired cuisine with a little bit of Spanish touches. I had an octopus carpaccio that I really liked. And of course it's all cooked with olive oil, as you would expect from the name instead of butter or some other, uh, fat. Uh, I do think this is a really nice addition to the Galleria. This is a, a, a restaurant with a track record of success. In other cities, the the word of mouth from the people who were invited to the invite-only previews has been good, and I, you know they've. Uh, I think this is only going to be only going to be good things. I will say I liked the crostini that I tried, I liked the olive oil braised short rib I tried, and I liked a burrata salad with watermelon and heirloom tomatoes, which is like the least seasonal thing you could probably be eating in March in Houston. But it's a very classic combination, and the flavors were very good. So we have that to look forward to. And then I just want to talk briefly about a couple of the places that I went in Dallas, specifically Cadillac Barbecue, ranked number three by Texas Monthly on the list of the state's 50 best barbecue joints. I am not sure that it is the third best barbecue joint in the state, uh, but it was very good. In particular, the the brisket, of course, properly rendered, nicely seasoned, and the house-made sausages, which there just really aren't enough Houston barbecue joints making their own sausage. I mean, I, the pit room has earned quite a reputation for it, and Papa Delta Blues, one of our Tastemaker Awards Best New Restaurant nominees, has, is committed to that, but it's a reminder that the the seasonings, the snap, the flavor of a homemade sausage is really, really hard to beat. And then the other thing I did is I went to Finn Hall, or not Finn Hall, excuse me. That's opening in Houston. We'll talk about that next week. Legacy Hall, the, the food hall in Plano, north of Dallas. Uh, John Tizar is there with Knife Burger. A whole bunch of other Dallas restaurants are there. It's a three-story complex. It has a brewery. It has probably uh, 15 or so vendors. And this is my first food hall. And I am now more excited about the prospect of food halls in Houston having experienced this because we went with my, my whole family, my mother, my sister, her husband. They're two small children. Everybody got something different. Everybody found something that they liked. Even the boys, they had a, a waffle with fruit on top of it. Uh, my mother had a banh mi. My brother-in-law had a a bratwurst. I had a burger from Knife Burger, of course, and also soup dumplings because who can say no to soup dumplings? And I will say I liked how lively it was. It was it was kid friendly. There were a lot of families with young children there. It was busy. Uh, the beer I tried was pretty good. So I'm now more excited about the prospect of food halls in Houston, having been to Legacy Weston, Plano. Mary, what do you think about this? All these food halls that are coming to downtown. 
I wonder if all of them are actually going to get built. Okay, I think uh, we know at least a couple of them are. Um, I think there might be the chance for oversaturation. I think food halls in general are a good idea, and they've done very well in other cities. Um, one of my kind of favorites is the Embarcadero in uh, San Francisco is kind of a, a really cool concept that's been around for a while and has done very well, the slanted door restaurants. In that establishment, that's kind of my favorite one. Of course, you think of Herod's when you're traveling internationally and places like that. But I wonder, I wonder if there's enough support for it. I think a couple of them will do well. I don't really want to say which ones I think are going to do well and which ones I think may not. Uh, it, it depends on the value of the tenants that they attract and whether it's reflective of what people want. Right. So I will say Finn Hall that's coming to the Chase Bank building downtown has attracted Malasetuan. That was announced last week. They're going to announce a few more this week, specifically Good Company, Dish Society, a couple others that I think will kind of round that out. That kind of makes sense to me, partnering with brands that people know and putting them in a neighborhood that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. I will be more curious to see what happens with the, the food hall that Clark Cooper has gotten involved with in the arts district because they're vowing to bring in concepts from out of the city, uh, maybe even out of Texas. That may be a little bit of a tougher sell, but they're also going to have 800 parking spaces. So that's a, that's Ooh, a pretty compelling... 800 dedicated parking spots? Well, I think, it, I think yeah, I don't know exactly how they're going to be allocated, but yes, <laughs> I think that's a big deal. Okay. So, yeah, I think the, the Finn Hall component is is very interesting to me and uh and yeah i just the only the only thing about legacy is i don't understand it as a dinner destination all of the food that i ate was kind of or that, that we saw was kind of quick easy sandwichy stuff not a lot of dinner entrees and i think as we go forward and as more of these food halls open in houston that's something worth considering is how do you attract a dinner crowd and a place where people feel like they can stay and not just pop in and get their food and go. Right. You know, stay and drink wine or beer, that kind of thing. I don't know how you fight against the tendency of downtown for business, um, daytime, you know, people coming down from their office buildings wanting lunch. Right. Well, and Finn hall for Finn hall, that's going to work because it's basically right off the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll have a steady lunch business, but, but again, how do you how do you capture that dinner crowd? How do you keep people there downtown? Is it a is it a starting point before you go to the bars on Main Street? You know that's something the operators are going to have to kind of think through. Absolutely, yeah. I think I mean I won't speak for you, but for me, when I go downtown, it's usually walking within a one block kind of square area next to Market Square off of Main Street for the bars and uh, restaurants nearby. So being able to draw people to other parts might be difficult. Right. And then I will say that I had dinner at Lucia, the very acclaimed Italian restaurant in the Bishop's Arts District in downtown. Uh, Culture Map Dallas ranked it as the sixth best restaurant in Dallas when they ranked 100 restaurants in 2016. It 100% lived up to the hype. Uh, delicious plate of homemade charcuterie. Really great pastas that are all made in-house. I had a duck dish that I will be thinking about for a very long time. <laughs> And just a, a fantastic experience in a, in a really intimate space. It only has like 34 seats. It's a very tough reservation, but I just, 
you know, no, no tricks, no, no making phone calls, or trying to pull strings. I just used the Resi app and it notified me of a table available at 630 on, at Friday afternoon. It notified me that there was a table available uh, the next night at 630 <laughs> and I jumped on it in about 30 seconds. That's awesome. And I couldn't be happier. Very cool. All right. That does it for the restaurants of the week. Mary, before you get out of here, why don't you tell us what's going on at La Olivier? Uh, next couple of events we have um, our Prisoner Wine Dinner, uh, Thursday, March 29th. And then, of course, Easter is fast approaching. So we are normally not open for Easter brunch, but Olivier goes all out when we are. Sunday, uh, April 1st is Easter, so we will be open for brunch. Very good. All right. Mary Clarkson, thanks so much. Thank you. And I will be right back with Bobby Hugo. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I'm joined this week by Bobby Hugel, a man who scarcely needs any introduction, but I'm going to provide a brief one. He is the owner of Anvil Bar and Refuge, Tongue Cut Sparrow, The Pastry War, The Nightingale Room, and Better Luck Tomorrow. Uh, Bobby, am I I missing anything? Uh, Okra. Yes. Which is one of my my favorite bars for sure, so... Yeah, um, but that's it. That's it. Otherwise, nothing else. So. All right. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Uh, you flew in from Oaxaca this morning. That's right. Um, you know, there's there's a part of me that just like wants to ask you about your your new dog that keeps showing up on Instagram and he's awesome. Uh, but yeah, just why don't we just start with your trip to Oaxaca? How how was that? Uh, it's great. I mean, I'll be totally frank with you. This is probably the last hour of high energy I have for the day. So I'm a little I'm a little hungover. Uh, got a little case of Montezuma's Revenge from being being up in the mountains and eating some weird things and drinking some some sketchy water and stuff like that. But it's great. I love I love Oaxaca. It's it's awesome. I just feel like um, it's it's the soul of Mexico in so many ways. Uh, there's just such a commitment to older traditions. And of course, for me, that has a lot to do with Mezcal, but it's also just just a, a good reset, I feel like, from a, a major city with all the hustle and bustle that we have in Houston to go down and just visit families that are, are really focused on doing a few things and just the warmth that they share with each other and them inviting you into their homes. It's just a really special experience I get to have in life. Yeah, I, I find Mezcal as a spirit category very intimidating. It should be. I, I don't I don't know that much about it. I, I've and I don't I don't even know like what I'm supposed to be drinking and I'm worried <laughs> I'm like nervous to order the wrong thing. That's okay. I, I don't think that like we're supposed to turn spirits or food or anything into something that's meant for everybody. I think some people really latch on to mezcal and it becomes fun and interesting and engaging and you know, maybe you have some specific connection with that spirit that makes you want to learn and digest more or, or you're used to smoky intimidating flavors because you drink all kinds of weird spirits all day long but uh i don't know i think it's i think it's unique in that it's it's managed to last this long as this very unique cultural process are you surprised that it's become more popular over the last couple of years no because i think that it in a lot of ways we're seeing that happen with beverages we're seeing natural wine become more popular in the wine world we're seeing hoppy intimidatingly bitter IPAs become bigger in the beer world and more extreme spirits that have kind of been French spirits become things that people are more curious about. I think the question with all of those categories is how long will they last? I know that I'll always be interested in Mezcal, but I don't know that the general public will always be interested in natural wine, for example. Right. I mean, I'm, 
like I'm interested in sort of some like smokier, peatier scotches. And so I have tried some mezcal and I've liked some mezcal, but like I don't I don't know like where to go with it. I don't know if you're supposed to go anywhere. I think it's it's that's like I don't really like mezcal cocktails. I mean, one of our more famous cocktails at Anvil is made with mezcal, but just generally I prefer when people drink it neat and it's just a small experience that you sip and that's it. Like I think it's better that way. So if it's if it's something that appeals to you in that in that way, I think that's great. And if it's not, I think that's okay too because I think people forget that we're dealing with this very obscure spirit from this very limited geographic region. And, and in fact, if we try to sell it to the entire world, we're going to have a massive problem and it's going to change dramatically. And we're already seeing that start to happen a little bit. But it's like, naturally, it's not meant to be for everybody. And, and that's been a problem too with tequila, hasn't it? I mean, we're, you know, it takes these uh, blue agave plants seven years to grow. Yeah. And all these spirit companies are trying to speed that up to make more tequila for people. Yeah, I mean, they're meeting global demand. Tequila just reached an agreement, or Mexico just reached an agreement with China where they're selling more tequila than there ever has been in, in China, and the, the booze and bar industry in China is starting to boom. And so that's kind of created a, a tip in the global balance for, again, how something from this limited region can then appeal to everybody. But the thing that really did that more than anything else was frozen margaritas, right? When frozen margaritas were invented in Dallas people got really enamored with this drink that was an alcoholic slushy and it really started to tip the scales. And as soon as that happened, then global spirit companies were like, whoa, 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 we should buy tequila because people really want to drink these frozen margaritas. So the real problem there was just our affinity in Texas and then that spreading elsewhere for frozen margaritas. So really it's our fault. So, it, No, no, let's be specific about this. It's, it's really Dallas's fault. I, you know, I'm, I'm not one that, that avoids blaming Dallas for much. So... <laughs> Um, I, I have so many topics I want to hit with you. You had a really busy 2017. You opened two new bars. You, you've, I mean, Anvil continues to be uh, a very popular destination. Are you, are you sort of satisfied with kind of, well, let me, let me start with better luck tomorrow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, has that bar sort of met your expectations for, a new concept in the Hyatts? Are you, are you happy with where you're at? We're, we're super happy with where we're at. Um, but it was a super challenging year. Uh, you know, the hurricane obviously dramatically affected everybody in the industry and, and certainly affected people far worse than it did us. The floodwaters came half a block um, from BLT but didn't actually come in. And the worst thing that happened was we lost power for 12 hours. So we were, we were certainly very lucky. But, it, you know, it was really difficult to, to deal with that, disrupting the flow of when you open a new business. And I think... You know, what your goal is, is you get open and you, you know, if you're, if you're fortunate enough, people talk about your place and they get excited about it and people come and then maybe they come back because they liked it or they don't because they, they thought it sucked, right? But ideally they come back and they get more enthusiastic about it and they come three or four times and then it ideally becomes a place that becomes a regular part of their leisurely time. So right around when we were supposed to be developing kind of that, that relationship with people, the hurricane hit and when people came back to bars and restaurants from from being at home during the hurricane or dealing with their, you know, various problems and stuff like that. They didn't go back to new places. They went back to nostalgic older places, which is what I did too. So it was kind of weird um, going through all of that. And then the Astros playoffs, as much as I've been an Astros fan my entire life, really don't help cocktail bars without TVs. So it was definitely a really weird year. Um, but I, 
I think that we're really fortunate and that we can weather those things now. And the bar is everything that we hoped it would be right now. We're so excited about it. You know, Justin got Theodore Rex opened. Um, so we were able to do brunch and now we're doing brunch and it's just been so great over the last four or five months and it's everything that we hoped it would be. And we're super excited about where the bar is at. And then, and then there's tongue cut Sparrow, which is this kind of Japanese inspired, very intimate, um, almost formal experience. Formal. Yeah. I like the word formal. Yeah. Um, how is that being received? Because I, I, I have to admit, I have not been downtown as much uh, as I used to be. I think it's going a lot better than I expected. I mean, I really thought we'd make a lot of people angry by telling them that they couldn't come in and we only had 25 seats. And for the most part, everybody comes upstairs and kind of show them the room. And because I've worked that position, the host position a lot, because I find it really, really challenging. Like, how do you how do you convey to people that we appreciate them coming by and then at the same time make them feel okay about a no or it's going to be two hours and I'm just kind of guessing. Um, but uh, I think it's it's been great. I think Houston has been excited about the idea that there's a different bar concept. As much as I love all of our cocktail bars in the city, I think one glaring problem with them collectively as a whole is they're they're relatively similar to each other. And when you go to other cities, you see a little more diversity in the bar scene. So I think it's it's going great, um, and it's it's doing that thing that we wanted it to do, which was be something different, appeal to people during certain times and during certain evenings and certain experiences, and allow us at the same time to not have to deal with the the overwhelming volume that we do at Anvil, for example. Yeah, and and my my couple of visits to Tuncut have been, you know, either before or after dinner, dressed up as part of a night out. That's when it kind of feels appropriate to me. It does, but we also get people coming in before like Astros and Rockets games. And what we always like to tell people is you don't have to dress up for us. We dress up for you. So I think if, if people get comfortable with the space too, especially some of the regulars we have, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter if I come in in a T-shirt. You know, and I think that that's, that's helped us kind of get that balance because it is we, – we do really great after dinner and we do really great on Fridays and Saturdays. But on Wednesdays and Thursdays, it's just not that busy because, like you said, we still don't have the same residential density the, that other cities do in the country, right? People are using it for special occasions. Those are typically on the weekends. Um, so that's a, that's a real challenge. But we knew that was going to be an issue too. And, and the bar does exactly like financially what we thought it was going to do, which is basically that it doesn't make any money. It, it basically is just it's 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 a special project that that does just well enough to to exist and utilize the space that was upstairs that we weren't utilizing before. But we all really love it a lot. So, and then how are the other downtown bars doing? Because I, I feel like after the hurricane, that was very slow to come back. That that nightlife yeah. scene, and and I've seen you know other places on the block kind of either go away or evolve to where they're. They're not open as often. They're 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 definitely open Fridays and Saturdays, and then right beyond that, it's a little bit hard to tell. What, what how's that going? I think that it's going okay. Um, I don't. I think it's hard for me to not speak from the perspective of how me and my friends, and by that I mean the people that opened Okra and the people that are directly around me that I've worked with for years feel about downtown generally. I think downtown is getting to a point where it's oversaturated. Um, and I think it's it's oversaturated with a lot of people that told us that we were stupid for opening bars downtown, which I find to just be a really special situation. Um, but that's OK. I mean, it, it just people tend to open bars when we have events like Super Bowl and, and whatnot and try and, you know, do the things that bars in Austin are doing this week. And that's make a lot of money on 
on buyouts for South by Southwest and stuff like that. I just don't think that develops the best bar scene. I think that our little corner of downtown still remains special and successful. And I'm kind of protectionist about that. I lived down there when we were building Okra. I lived in, in what's high and dry. I lived in the back of that bar. That was my apartment. So when I go up there now, I'm like, this is really weird. I just, I used to sleep right here where there's like 20 people standing. Um, so I, I don't know. I like really love and believe in downtown and I have a, a real passion for it. But I do think it's it's getting oversaturated. I do think that that block though is still something really special. And I don't think that that's changed a whole lot. Yeah, I I don't even know that we talk enough about how almost quixotic it was. I mean, I was a, a student at UH downtown in the, in the fall of 2012 and I, I would walk that, you know, I'd, I'd walk that block at main street to like go to subway or whatever and never, you know, five and a half years ago would I have imagined the crowds that populate that area on Friday and Saturday. I mean, it was a pretty big risk. It seems like to create a, a nightlife district where there just wasn't anything. Well, I think Okra made that all possible for us, but that's not why we opened Okra. I think that we all opened Okra because we wanted to open a bar in a neighborhood that, that wouldn't cannibalize our other businesses, which really meant that we could afford to do this bar that donates all of its money to charity downtown, and we couldn't afford to do it elsewhere. And then a lot of us had been looking at that space because it was so cool, but just thinking to ourselves, there's no way we can really make this happen. And then when we did it, we were able to open the bar for $75,000 total, which is unreal. Like you can't, you can't open a bar for $75,000 today. And that's because the space was existing. And then it did so much better than what we all thought. You know, the downtown district was kind of hounding us about the bars around the corner and asking us if they could take us on a tour. And all of us were like, no, 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 no. We don't want to do any of this. And then we all went on a group tour one day. I remember a bunch of us got together and we all went on the tour. And then afterwards we all thought about it. And we all talked about which spaces we were each going to try to lease so that we didn't step on each other's toes. And we generally tried to not sign leases too far apart from one another so that we wouldn't cause spikes in each other's rent, which has got to be like one of the coolest stories about like bars and friends opening a bar ever that, that then did all this other stuff because we really just put a lot of concentrated energy into trying to make that block something really, really special. And that's why I still feel so passionate about it today because I just think that's a really unique story. Yeah, and I, you know, I was I was down there for the first time in a while, and I I went to High and Dry, and I you know sort of poked my nose into Moving Sidewalk and uh, tried to get into Tunkett's Barrow. Didn't have a reservation. Was politely told not happening. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, it it happens. I I understand, but uh, yeah, I mean it. You know, to have so many distinct spaces with with such, you know different atmospheres and and but but it's like but it feels very houston it's very eclectic it's it's a it's a diverse crowd i don't know i mean we we needed something like that in the city that you know there wasn't really a an area in the city with the exception of midtown but i think midtown is a little different younger of a scene that's that's great for for that demographic and those people that are excited about it in a lot of ways alienating for anybody else that wants a casual drink so i think that downtown really became that answer for people and i think it it still is, and I don't. I don't think that's going to go away. I do think that we'll see some bars close, but I think that's just a natural correction. And I think our tendency when we talk about restaurants and bars now is to, is to sensationalize things that are happening, right? Both in media and then also on the industry side. And I think that that what we're going to see is we're going to see downtown 
come back to where it should be that matches how many residents we have and appeals to the broader city as a whole. And they're going to use it in that way. I just think that there's a little too much activity down there right now from people that were trying to make a quick buck. Well, and certainly the number of residents downtown is growing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of new apartment towers and there are lots of people betting pretty big on downtown. I mean, there's what, like three new food halls coming and yeah. So it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah, I think I think some of these places will close. I mean, you know, there's a place that was next door to public services that opened and closed so quickly. I don't even remember its name. It was Chupacabra. It was a tequila and mezcal bar. Okay. They they bought the other side of the tequila and mezcal spectrum that we didn't, which is fine too. You know, that's it's just that, but that's what it was. Yeah. Right. So, but but now that's already something else, and and you know. Uh, but I, but it does hold some appeal. I mean, I actually, uh, Mike Raymond was on the show a few weeks ago. He's opening downtown. Um, one of the things he said was he felt like the, the kind of prohibition style cocktail bar has been done so thoroughly that people need to find like a new way to do cocktails like, or, or not like, or that that concept is a, as a framework for a bar is kind of done. I don't I don't know if I would agree with that entirely, but I think he's talking about the same thing I am with the lack of diversity in the bar scene. And I think that that, that we both feel that way. Um, I, I tend to not think about it as prohibition era because also like most of the drinks that people make from that time were from 30 years and then up to prohibition. And I, and I don't think that people represent like what classic cocktail bars are trying to do rhetorically correctly. And I don't think operators do all the time either, which is always an indication that maybe something's a little off. Um, but I, I think that there's always going to be a place for classic cocktails. Again, do we need as many classic cocktail focused bars in the city as we have? Probably not. We need people like Mike and other people to say, let's try this instead and let's do something different. And I'm excited about seeing what he does over there. Cause I, I really like reserve one one and I think he's, he's got a lot of background in the industry. So, yeah. And he's working with a couple of guys who have experience on the East and West coast and that should yeah, be, they're great guys too. So a new influence. And he's talking about like a, like a seventies rock vibe, which I'm sort of intrigued by. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, I think people need to talk about things other than drinks. Like when people describe bars, it's like, well, we're this kind of bar. And it, if you think about the last decade, people described a bar as like a product. I was like, we're a wine bar, a beer bar, a classic cocktail bar. And I'm like, yeah, but what about music and what it feels like inside and how you use the space? And, you know, do you go on a date there? Do you not? Do you go to meet somebody like, you know, is it a, is it a Friday, Saturday thing? Or is it like a Sunday, Monday? Or like I, there's just so many different things that go into bars. Oh, no, I, I, I've thought about this at least a little bit. There are, there are definitely like there are first date bars where you take someone to kind of, you know, have a conversation and be get to know people and then there are then there are like deal closing bars where it's like the third or the fourth date and you're like trying to make something happen for yourself and they that that's a whole different <laughs> that's a whole different environment yeah and they're they're com- well i don't know i think people are also losing that sensitivity nowadays it's like where do you you talk to somebody on tinder where that's do you right. want to meet Swipe at, right and you know it's all of, that era is kind of going away in a lot of ways too um but I, I think that then, in some ways, bars get to respond to that. They get to respond to, like, how much time we spend on our phones, and they get to create an environment and a world for us that's not as, like, like linear as, like, how we engage the world now, where I log in, and this is this, and I have the interactions with people that I don't. And I think bars are still one of the only places where it's like, you know, I'm a, I might have to talk to a stranger. You know, 
You know, and I think that's good for us. I think it's good for the world to have to talk to strangers more. So you said you'd like to see a little more diversity in terms of the styles of bars in Houston. Are there a couple of specific styles of bar that you would like to see come here? Well, yeah, but that that might also mean talking about bars that I'm not ready to talk about yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's you know. No, I yeah, I mean I think that I'd like to stretch my wings a little bit, but I also I just I'd like to see maybe maybe like people like like Mike or people that didn't necessarily work with this very close friendship interweb group that we all worked with that kind of all set our wells up the same way and tend to buy the same types of spirits and you know things like that i think that even if you're trying to do something different those similarities through like service and how people feel about you know classic cocktails and stuff like that become kind of homogenous and i i just would really like to see people be like no that's not how you make that like let's make it like this and no we're not going to play that kind of music we're going to play this because i'm i'm from the northeast i think Travis Tober opened a bar in Austin called Nickel City, which is kind of modeled off after like a, a Northeast dive, which works so well in Austin, right? It's like people want more casual drinks outside of South Congress and downtown, and they kind of want neighborhood bars, but they want people that are still proficient in making cocktails. Like, I think we could see that happen in Houston a lot more, and it would be great. So, Do you have an opinion on the the patio bar trend? I mean, I feel like... BLT is kind of a, a more intimate version of it, but but there are, I mean, there are these large kind of beer focused, Axelrad Heights Beer Garden, Kirby Ice House, even. Right. Do you do you do you feel like that's kind of reached its end, or do you? I like some of them, and I really hate others, and I won't say which ones are which because that would just be rude. But I, 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 I think that in a lot of ways it's, it's, functioning the way nightclubs used to function. Right. It's like we're going to go somewhere and again, do that thing where we run into people and crave a social interaction that we don't get staring at our phones all day long. So the more people, the better. But we also get to live in this casual world. That doesn't mean that we have to dress up in the same way that we do when we go out to a nightclub on Friday or Saturday. We're not going to clay. We're going to this. But we get the same amount of social interaction and the same kind of feel. But we get to use it at a different time. And I think that's also reflecting social attitudes toward drinking that it's like, it's okay to do it on a Saturday afternoon. And, you know, if you have eight drinks and pass out by 10 o'clock, everybody's like, well, it was your day off. It's cool. You know, whereas like that probably wasn't something you talked about 15 years ago. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but I think that that's, that's fueling the, the, the patio trend. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's, it's people finding ways to, to meet that craving for something that I don't think life offers everybody nowadays and i think that's that's factoring into to why patio bars are becoming bigger things here i yeah i mean because the ice house experience is is like is embodied at a place like west alabama is like a very different more low-key kind of beer focused yeah i wish they wouldn't call them ice houses that's one thing i'll say even though i really like kirby's ice house i've had a good time there um, that's the only one I can think of immediately that was called an ice house. But I do wish people would be a little more sensitive to that term because it's got a lot of cool history. Like basically ice houses were, were places where you went and got ice pre like 1920 in Texas. Right. And then eventually ice houses were like, well, we'd like to stay in business now that people have freezers and refrigerators. What do we do? And they basically went one of two directions. They either became gas stations or they became like bottleneck spots where you could go and get a beer. Um, and so that's, that's what happened. And there's like all this rich history and why that's unique. And, you know, there were, there were 
ice houses like Magnolia Ice House, which is downtown, um, and like just different things like like that that existed and are part of our cultural heritage when it comes to drinking and where we come from. And I still think that we have ice houses like West Alabama Ice House. And I still think people could build ice houses today, but I don't think they're large, giant bars that have eight walls behind them and 2,000 people in them. And I, I think we should be sensitive to that that concept. Uh, all right, so you'll probably disagree with me, but I, I kind of feel like some of these new like neighborhood-focused breweries are kind of picking up where that kind of left off. I mean, like I went to Baleson Brewery recently on Bissonette, and it's, you know, they've got like four or five beers that they brewed on tap. It's got like a, it's a, it's a converted gas station. And it really, it, like, they're not really planning to distribute very much. A Holler Brewery is kind of the same thing. Right. In the Story Arts District where you can find it on a few tap walls, but but essentially, like, they just want to create like a little community around that brewery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I feel like that might be maybe a, a new expression of the same idea, right? A, a small kind of neighborhood focused spot. Maybe. I mean, I think ice houses and, and that type of place can work in the same way. But I think those places aren't trying to take the ice house model and update it with craft beer. I think instead they're mimicking places like San Diego. Right. Which is something that I, I like when that happens in Houston in some ways. I, I travel a lot and try and stay updated on different concepts and what people are doing around the country and bring some of those ideas home. But I also wish that we didn't mimic places as much as we tend to do here in Houston in the bar scene. Um, and I, I, I wish that there were more of those original. I just want to do it for this reason. You know, like this is just I was talking to a friend of mine in Oaxaca. He, he's from San Francisco and he was talking about how his favorite bars when he moved to San Francisco were like, weird places with like crazy personalities behind the bar, like the Zam Zam room. And he's like, nobody calls a bar the Zam Zam room anymore. And I, I do think we're missing some of that. Why the hell not? Yeah. I, you know, I feel like good night. Charlie says a little bit of that. Spirit. I haven't been yet. I haven't been, I feel bad cause it's literally like down the street from my house and down the street from Anvil, but it's been kind of a busy month and I, I haven't made it. Yeah, no, but I, you know, why not open a country music dance hall in the middle? Exactly. Of I mean, and it's, and it's, definitely different than anything else around it and it's it's working for people i mean when you when you go there and the band's playing and there's people dancing it's it's fun yeah and it's right across the street from another bar like that poison girl we like three things at poison girl we like music pinball and bourbon and that's what that was the the premise for for how that bar came to be and i i like places like that a lot a whole lot and i think some of the breweries are like that um and I think you obviously have people that are super passionate about craft beer, but I'd like to see some of those concepts mixed up with like some more, why the hell not? That's what I always loved about petrol station, right? And been up there. It's like that, that bar was such a big like connection for like who he was as a person and then how, how service was done there and what they put on tap and everything. And I love going to places like that where like I get to know the staff and the owner, even if I don't engage them just by sitting in this space, because I feel like I'm like sitting in someone's opinion of like how this little pocket in the world should be. And I like that feeling. Yeah. And, and he took that and applied it to a brewery. I yeah. mean, Brash is basically mouth puckeringly hoppy IPAs, yeah. heavy metal and 80s video games. Exactly. And I, I think that's awesome. Um, let me ask you about one other thing. You mentioned okra as a bar, but it also had a political component. Yeah. Um, the organization, oh man, I'm organized collaboration on restaurant affairs, collaboration with a K. So it's a weird thing, but it made it work. So, um, you guys came together, uh, in a, to 
expressed an opinion about uh, proposed parking regulations. Yeah. Are there new political issues that you feel engaged about that you want to issue with the city? I mean, I know so many people are frustrated with how long it takes to get permit approvals, for example. Yeah, I don't I don't think that we as independent operators generally do a good job of explaining to the city what our struggles are. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the generational gap, honestly. I don't think that some of our older restaurateurs are as active politically as they could be. And if they are, I think frequently it's self-serving. And I don't think that our independent restaurateurs understand the barriers and obstacles that are in front of them and therefore don't preemptively engage some of those issues until they find themselves trapped in in, in dire situations where they need someone to help them get out of the planning department or whatever. Um, Like when we did that initially, I mean, I think I worked on the parking battle that year harder than I did any of our businesses, because frankly, if the city had passed what it wanted to pass, it would have destroyed the independent restaurant and bar scene in the city. Um, They wanted to require businesses to have 14 parking spaces per thousand square feet if they were a bar and 12 per thousand if they were a restaurant, which just seems like a bunch of numbers, but to just keep it brief, the amount of land that you would have to be capable of controlling as a restaurant or a bar would just become so cost prohibitive that the places that we love that are smaller startups and independent restaurants and stuff like that would just not be realistic in the city. And, you know, we all sat down and really tried to show the city, like, this is what it's like financially to try and run a business. And this is what it's like for us to try and, and open a bar or restaurant. And I, I mean, not to toot our own horn, but I just think that if that hadn't happened, I think that so many of the restaurants that you think about today that you really, really like would not exist. Right. And I mean, even, you know, and I mean, everybody loves to complain about parking, but I mean, ultimately I would rather walk a couple of blocks or Uber and have the restaurant available to me than not have the restaurant. Which is crazy that we can sit here and in 30 seconds come to that conclusion and say that something like Uber is important, right? And the mayor's office can't even do that. Right. Like when when the mayor's office was was financially being bought out by the, the, the cab companies in the city, which wasn't even hidden, was extremely blatant. Right. No one even talked about what the economic impact would have been on areas like downtown where there's no parking. Right. If Uber had gone away. And that's something that the mayor's office wanted to see happen. That's something that council members like. Had, who had been bought out as well, wanted to see happen. And there was never a discussion about what is the economic impact of these policies that we have in place that require bars and restaurants to provide parking, now utilizing an alternative that benefits their customers and also benefits their business. How will we overcome this issue if we decide to make this decision? And fortunately, the mayor's office never actually had a chance to make that decision because the state went and made a decision about the issue and just... Right. Went. Uber Uber spent more money at the state level than the cab companies did, but it which is which is great and it, it you know it was it was it was good for us because i do think that downtown would have failed if the mayor's office had gotten what it wanted out of that situation which is crazy to me that there was never a discussion with restaurateurs downtown about how dependent they were on uber even though we had data about how many of our customers used uber and whatnot and i and i just don't think that our local government takes enough time to care about the challenges that go into operating restaurants and bars so does that mean that do you feel like personally obligated to be more politically involved or do you feel like you now have enough influence that you can get your voice heard? I don't know. Both. Like I'm familiar with the process now and I understand how those things work. And I think that we've got a network of, of 
restaurant and bar owners in the city now that are familiar with that because of the parking battle and because of what we did with okra and if we needed to mechanize that again we could um, but it is so time consuming i mean i i'm not exaggerating when i say that year i worked on that harder than i did on any of our places and that's when we were in our our in the middle of opening underbelly and hammerich and blacksmith and and doing all those things because i knew that if we didn't take the time that we would have been in a really a, a really bad situation and it just i don't have the time for that all the time now and you know maybe that's me being a hypocrite and not making the time to talk about the things that that you know i said earlier that we needed to do more as a whole um but it's just it is really really challenging and it is a very dense world um that's that's hard to navigate at times and so i i think that we just need more widespread conversation about what that needs to be. Restaurateurs and, and restaurant workers and bar workers need to pay attention to what's happening in local government and respond on Twitter and Instagram and just stay up to date on what's happening about these regulations that could massively affect the opportunities that you have in the city in the future as an employee or as someone that wants to open their own space one day. All right. I'm getting the, the high sign from Michael. <laughs> um, let me ask you about one other thing and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, you occasionally have joked on Facebook. Well, I think you were joking. Who knows about, I want to open a bar in New York. Yeah. Do you, how serious are you? Do you, do you have a, an aspiration to open bars in other cities? I, I do. Um, because I, I'd like the challenge of working in environments that are more competitive than Houston. Um, which again, isn't a, isn't a knock on our scene. I just, it's just a selfish thing. Like I'd like to work in a place that has 300 cocktail bars instead of however many we have here and see if I could make it. You know, I just think that a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people go to New York and feel that way. A lot of people go to New York and want to dance on Broadway for the same reasons. You know, it's just, it's just a thing that I'd like to do in the future. Do I think that'll happen? Probably not. Um, I just don't think there's enough time and as life moves forward, my commitments become more focused on our staff, who works for me, what their needs are. But I'll tell you one thing that really does kind of twist that that knife a little bit and it's it's the things like the hurricane like what's going to happen with climate change in the future how many hurricanes will hit houston how will our government respond i don't think that restaurants and bars can afford to have a hurricane hit every three years and for the scene to be as dynamic as it is now what happens if in 15 years we become less dependent upon oil and our global and national economy shifts to different resources that's going to hurt the economy in houston as well and i mean i'm 34 I start to think about what is the restaurant and bar scene going to look like in Houston when I'm 55. And while I'm a huge champion of the city, those are issues that we all need to be concerned about. And, you know, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, not letting those things sneak up on you is really, really important. And those aren't issues that I can necessarily control. So I'll respond to them as best as I can, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I guess I, I really, right. I suppose I don't think about like, Anvil, I mean, Anvil opened in 2009, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I'm not really thinking about Anvil 2025 or BLT 2025. It's not really my responsibility, but I guess that is, I mean, you, you do want these bars to be around for as long as a place like Poison Girl or Warren's yeah. or any of them. I'd love Anvil to be there when I die. I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know that people will care about drinks that long, but I'd, that'd be really cool. But I mean, I've got people like Terry Williams working for me, who's our operations director at Anvil and BLT. And Terry's really making a commitment to to be with us for a longer period of time. And people like Isaias, who's literally worked with me since I worked at Beavers, has been our bar back at Anvil since then. And it's 
these kind of people that make me go, I have to responsibly stay ahead of this. I have to think about where our businesses are headed, the challenges that are coming off. They rely on me to not get caught off guard. And so that's really, really important. And it, it consumes a lot of my mental space. And I try and think about it a lot. I think I'll always be fine. I was always a good bartender. I could go back to that and, and be happy, possibly happier at times. You, you could go stir martinis at, a, at a Del Frisco's or something. I was never happier in life than I was in, in 2010 when we had opened Anvil and it was just Anvil and I was making drinks behind the bar. I just really loved that. But I also learned that's not the, the thing that I could have given the most with, both to people that I worked with and maybe to the city or whatever. I just felt like I needed to do more because it, it made sense to me and I learned that I had a mind for business, which I didn't know when we opened Anvil. Um, but I still just love those times the most. All right. Well, that feels like a good... Uh, a good spot to to wrap this up. I I I have uh, I always wrap up every interview with what I call the lightning round. Okay, five easy questions, five short answers. Got it. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. All right, Bobby Hugel, what's the first bar or restaurant you ever worked at? I worked at a Logan's Roadhouse. Uh, what is your favorite ingredient? Gin. <laughs> Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, oh, Hakeem. What is the first concert you ever saw? Dave Matthews. And I hated live music forever after that. It was really bad. And then I finally came back around over the last few years. So. Uh, and where's your favorite place to get a taco? To get a taco? Yeah. Uh, Tierra Caliente right next to West Alabama Ice House. I think it's hard to separate those experiences. Um, well, Bobby, thank you so much. Uh, for doing the show, um, God, there's so many different there's so many different websites. I don't uh, AnvilHouston dot com for Anvil. Sure, just leave it at and, that. <laughs> and and everything else. I'll I'll link them all. Uh, I'll link them all in the Culture Map article uh, that accompanies this art that accompanies this podcast. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on CultureMap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.